This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, so I'm sitting here and I am talking to Eric Erickson. And uh, Eric is the winner of the publicly challenged giveaway that we did to the Western Hunting Summit. So I'm super excited to talk to him and see what... uh, what his thoughts were and what he learned along the way. And on top of that, uh, Eric also got a really cool pack from uh, Initial Ascent. So I'm kind of curious to see what uh, what his thoughts are on that as well. So uh, Eric, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, my name is Eric Erickson. I grew up in Vermont, uh, lived there for about 30 years. Uh, worked as a canine officer over there um, before heading over to New York. I uh, currently work for the state in New York, uh, doing Medicaid fraud investigations. I have two girls, 11 and 12, soon to be 12 and 13. Um, They're current softball coach, which is fun. (laughs) So I started uh, really getting into the Western hunting um, due to uh, my father's diagnosis with Parkinson's about 10 years ago now, eight years ago, somewhere around there. Uh, my father and I, we used to do a lot of hunting together. Uh, you know, pretty much every year we would go away at least one place on vacation to go hunt. And it was always in the Northeast. We always dreamed about going out West and, you know, he worked really, really hard throughout the years. Didn't really want to leave his job for much longer than a week. Um, he was always worried about things. He was a manager where he was was always worried about things leaving and he was always big about you know creating a nest egg for us kids so we didn't go on a lot of vacations um so back in 2010 i believe he was diagnosed with parkinson's disease and it pretty much took him down pretty rapidly within like three or four years after that where he was no longer hunting um, and I just said to myself, I'm like, it's going to get to the point where I don't want to miss out on opportunities. I want to be able to go experience those things that him and I always talked about doing. So that's what brought me into diving headfirst into the Western hunting and trying to educate myself as a person from the Northeast to get out there. No, I think that's pretty cool. Um, you know, especially knowing that you know you saw what happened to your dad and your your time you know you realize that your time is precious and your time is short and if you don't get to do those things it's going to be in the back of your mind kind of lingering and and always wanting 
uh, you know, or regretting that you didn't do that. So I think it's pretty cool that you took the step and uh, kind of got yourself into uh, better, better shape and, and decided that you, you know, wanted to pursue that. So um, kind of tell everybody, like, what have you done out West so far? I mean, Elkhans and what? So back in 2007, right around the time when he was just before he was first diagnosed, uh, my cousin had got a hold of me and they want, we wanted to go out to Colorado. So I grabbed my Cabela's whitetail backpack and my, all my scent clothes and thought I was going to go out and conquer the woods out there. And we got a <laughs> second season or third season Colorado rifle tag. And what we were told before we went out there was, listen, you got to get up near the top to this one area. You got to just pick a pot spot and sit there all day just like whitetail hunting. So <laughs> him and I figured, oh, we can, we can definitely do this. So I ended up getting a few of things, um, just a backpack. I think I got it off of, you know, one of the, the hiking websites had no real legit frame. <laughs> um, I had, we didn't have, I don't even think we had brought a stove with us. We thought we were going to just uh, warm up some cans of like Hormel chili over the fire and <laughs> live off of uh, protein bars for the week. And we got up there and it was in the sunlight, it was a hundred degrees. And at night it was down to zero. <laughs> it was miserable. That's rough. We had, we had frost inside the tent. I had to keep like knocking it off and <laughs> we gave up after about like three or four days doing that. Yeah. And I was, I was in really good shape, but coming from the Northeast, going out there, I, we weighed our packs. My pack was like close to a hundred pounds just for the gear we were bringing up there. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> but you do that. You do that on your first time around. You, you throw yeah. a bunch of stuff in that you think you might need, you might want. And uh, next thing you know, you got your whole house with you or your whole truck with you anyway. And, uh, yep. and, and, you just end up miserable hauling around a bunch of extra weight that you don't need. So, uh, what, what kind of happened after that then? Was there any more excursions since then or? No. So everything kind of slowed down. Um, I ended up having, went on, went on vacation with my dad a couple more times. Uh, we hunted Maine and Northern Vermont. My dad's last hunt, he actually got a really, really nice buck out of Northern Vermont, you know, tracking it in the snow. Um, after that, I ended up having my two children. So things kind of went on hold for a while. Understand I was still hunting that. all the time. You know, <laughs> white tails and bear and, you know, the typical Northeast turkeys and stuff like that. And I just, we, we kind of took a pause. And then in 2018, I started putting back in for tags. And I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. So we didn't draw anything that first year. The second year we put in for Montana and we draw, we drew a 920 archery tag. Um, and at that point in time, I was all in, I was listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and I got a membership to go hunt. And I started really figuring out my gear issues that I had from the prior hunt. Uh, just through all the information that I didn't have back in 2007 when I first, 2007, 2008, right. when I first started. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even know what a podcast was. I don't think I right, may, may have, <laughs> I may have heard them. And it's kind of funny because, you know, you get back, you start learning. I started uh, really digging into different things and then I found podcasts and I was like, wow, man, you know all this information on there. And then it started to be the point where there was people that I wanted to talk to and ask my questions and ask questions that I knew other people had. And next thing you know, it snowballed into my own podcast, but, um, it, it was, uh, definitely a learning experience that drove me in the direction that I'm headed now. And hopefully all those mistakes in the past can help me with my success. And on top of that, trying to put myself around people, like going to the Western Hunting Summit and learning from those people, um, hopefully that could advance my, you know, uh, ability to hunt and, and my knowledge base. And I thought it was such a cool experience that, uh, 
when I went there and I knew that if I was going on an elk hunt this year, I wouldn't be able to go to the Western hunting summit because I didn't have enough time to take the vacation time for that and still have time for family and everything else. So I wanted to share it with somebody and I wanted to share it with somebody that really wanted to go and learn. And, uh, that's through your essay was how you were picked. And, um, so I'm kind of curious though, just what, I mean, what was your take on it, man? I, was it almost overwhelming with all the knowledge that was thrown at you or just, I mean, what, uh, what what did you like about it? What did you not like? What what was just? I mean, what what's your consensus on it? Honestly, it was an amazing experience. We you know I learned so much from so many talented individuals, and everybody there, every single person there got along great. The instructors were, you know, I could just pull them aside, just eating lunch with them or eating dinner with them, and you know, talk to them and share my experiences and share, have them share their experiences to, you know, further my education on, you know, my learning curve to be a better outdoorsman when it comes to hunting the West, something that I'm not used to. Yeah. I thought the coolest part when I went there was, um, we, we did a little bit different than you guys did on, on your summit, because I think you were kind of stationed and based, um, at, at the ranch, I think. And then, so we went and we spent our first day, we gathered up and hiked up onto the mountain and stayed up on a glassing spot on the mountain and spent the night there. And then the next morning we got up and did a few things and then we hiked out. But that morning, I thought, I'm just one of the coolest things was me and another guy were sitting there, we were eating breakfast. We were talking to Brian Barney, who is just a treasure trove of knowledge and just willing to share it, talk so much about it. And, um, I think that's why Ryan Lampers, uh, he's, he's not that great in a group setting and he knows that. So he brings in people like Brian and some of these other guys to, to really voice things that he normally wouldn't address to a group and say, but if you pull Ryan aside and you sit there and talk to him, he'll talk to you and have a great conversation. You can learn a lot from him. But Brian Barney is one of those guys that totally blew my mind. I didn't really know who he was. And the guy goes, you got any questions? Make sure you ask Brian. And I was like, okay. And so we were there eating breakfast and I was just talking and we were looking at a, at, at a, you know, the other side of this, this draw. And, um, you know, like how would, if an elk was over there, how would you approach it? What would you do? Um, you know, would you wait until you bedded them down and, you know, all these different things, would you make a move on them and try and catch them before the timber and every single thing that we threw at them, not only could you visualize it because it was right there in front of you, but you know, just the knowledge that was dropped on you along the way, it was, it was absolutely amazing. Um, did you have kind of any experiences like that or what was, uh, kind of some of the teaching moments for you? Yeah, absolutely. Like I just, you know, I took in everything that I could get. And a lot of times, um, you know, after everything was over and done with, I just, there was so much free time to be able to, I, I say free time. We were really, we were rocking and rolling <laughs> from about six thirty in the morning until good eight o'clock at night, every single day with stuff. Nice. And, uh, just not to get on a tangent, but one of the, how my entire weekend started was the uh we really had a hard time with transportation so we were going to figure out a way that i was going to get there because i i just couldn't find a rental so i fly in the airport and this guy comes up to me he's like hey are you heading to the western hog summit <laughs> i said yeah i'm heading this guy guy named nate from california nice so shout out to him um uh, he's like i think we got some room if you want to ride over with us we're going to get a, a van from u-haul because they couldn't find a rental car either nice <laughs> So his two buddies show up, Bill and Scooter, and we had, and they're from Arizona, and they go to U-Haul, and they come back, and all they had was a two-seater box truck. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah. so here, I, here we are loading up all the, all the gear, um, and 
I ended up sitting in the back with Scooter and we ended up, I mean, it was just like riding in the back of a rider van. <laughs> so, wait a minute. You guys ended up saying, heck with it, we'll take the box truck. <laughs> yeah, we had no choice. Everybody else was like completely like out. That's awesome. So, yeah. one, you had plenty of so room Scooter, for gear. Scooter and I were sitting here sweating to death in the back of the box truck for like a good hour and 15 minutes. We got a couple breathers, stopped at Walmart and got some extra, you know, food and supplies and stuff like that you probably that's, that's how the whole weekend started you probably didn't need a whole lot of food i mean they they uh feed you pretty good out there um oh they they did for sure yeah like uh mark and uh cody rich were there uh cooking up i think we had like bear and elk fajitas on the mountain or something like that and then breakfast was bear biscuits and gravy and i mean it was just and then the food never stopped from there. Doc Hillary was cooking a bunch and made a bunch of really good, healthy stuff. Um, I finally figured out her banana bread recipe. So if you ever need that, um, I, I found that because it was pretty good. I, Because I, I have some dietary issues. So it was pretty cool that I could go somewhere and they're feeding you and you could still eat. Um, a lot of times, you know, like even at work, they'll order food or, you know, whatever. And I've always, I just bring my own because it's such a pain in the butt to have to try and know or whatever. But, um, you know, virtually everything there was gluten-free and, you know, a lot of it was grain-free and just, uh, so it made it pretty easy for even like a guy like me that's hard to have around when you're trying to feed everybody. But, um, it, it was pretty amazing. Um, so what kind of, what was the favorite thing that you had that they cooked for you? Was it the birch barrel stuff or? So birch barrel did most of the cooking along with, uh, they had a, they had some kitchen help. They had, uh, Mark Livesey's wife, Amy was, she worked her butt off <laughs> for, to provide the food and everything. And, uh, the first morning that our first meal happened to be, uh, sausage gravy and biscuits, which is like my absolute like totally addicted to that i'll order it every time i see it when i'm in the back country that's the same thing i i don't have house. Like food no so mountain house is decent it's pretty good but i ran into this uh company called pinnacle food company oh yes and the jalapeno biscuit oh my god that stuff's so good <laughs> see, i think i, I could eat probably that <laughs> oh sorry no it's all good so like my thing is, is if I want to do that, then I just, I make my own. So I really, um, I really learned and like Mark and I, you know, became buddies and we really talked about, you know, making our own food and he does a lot of that. So I got a lot of advice from him and, you know, shared some knowledge that I discovered along the way with him. And we ended up doing two whole episodes. It was so long. I had to divide it in two parts, but, uh, all on your own food prep for that. But no, dude, I, if I could eat the pinnacle one, that sounds amazing. So without a doubt, it sounds really good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, funny thing is I was actually listening. I was re-listening to that podcast today because I got a dehydrator. I got all the stuff really to do it. I just got to get the bags and, uh, you know, get the, the oxygen. Yeah. And I mean, realistically, you probably don't even have to throw those in if you're going to be using them soon. But if you want to keep them for, you know, a couple of months or something like that, I'd probably throw yeah. the oxygen absorbers in there. And it makes it, it actually, when you seal it, it actually compresses it more. So it's not taking up more yeah. space in your bag. But the key to that is always throw more oxygen absorbers than the actual recommended in there. So it'll actually really suck it down. Kind of like the, the mountain house, the the space ones or whatever they are, the ones that are like yep. really shrunk down. And so, sorry yeah, I, I interrupted you on that one, but so you had bear no, biscuits no, and right. gravy, I'm guessing, or maybe it was elk, I don't know. It depends on who made the well, sausage. It tasted so good, I didn't even <laughs> tell where the meat was from. <laughs> but I'm sure it was something wild. Yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of that being fed. Um, the other thing I thought was really cool was birch barrel, they put some like uh, chips in there afterwards and smoked some peaches and hollowed it out and put some like uh, cinnamon ice cream or something on top. That oh, we didn't have that. Yeah, so that sounds good. That was freaking <laughs> awesome. I was like, man, that's really good. You know, that was one of the things that I remember. I was like, man, I, I need to go home and try and make that. So, 
that was pretty cool. Yeah, they had uh, like they had like an apple and ice cream, but it was the same thing. They they did it in the birch barrels. That sounds good too. I'd take that with <laughs> in a heartbeat. <laughs> um, I actually didn't feel guilty eating it either after all the calories we burned every day. So who did uh, the workouts with you on that one? Was it? Uh... So we did Mountain Tough. Oof. And uh, I'll be honest with you. So I did some of the stuff with Dan Staten from Elk Shape. And his stuff was pretty gnarly, but Mountain Tough was like a whole nother level. Made you feel like you were going to go into Bud's training or something? Oh, it was, <laughs> it was awful. I ended up not doing so a we... workout. for um, While I was on the mountain, I must have like kneeled on a rock or something. And I woke up that next morning and my knee was all swollen and I ended up having to go I ended up getting Doc Hillary actually diagnosed well gave me a recommendation didn't actually diagnose because of you know whatever professional reasons or whatever but told me she's like honey you need to go get that looked at I'm pretty sure that's cellulitis so went got it looked at sure enough it was infected and inflamed so I did the like the archery workout but when it came outside to doing uh Dan's workout which I don't think I've ever done hundred air squats in my life, but, uh, I think it was a hundred air squats, a hundred push-ups, or maybe it was 200, I think. So then you had to split you it. You guys do the Murph? It was ba- it's basically a Murph with a bunch of, sp- yeah, sprints in there instead of a, you know, a two mile run. And it was, it was a lot. Yeah. But see, normally it wouldn't be that big of a deal, but considering I'm coming from about a 800 to 1200 elevation, yeah, and then being up there in the six thousand—that's me. I'm four. They had four oh eight where I'm at, so I'm pretty low. Oh, you're even you're even lower <laughs> <Yeah>. than me. <laughs> so Mountain Tough had they had eight levels going out, and it was probably about a hundred yards. So it was broken out about twenty five yards in between. Um, or no, about maybe it was longer than it was probably fifteen yards or so in between and you started off with 25 burpees then you went to to get to the next level and you were in a team of like three you get to the next level then you had to do uh jumping lunges and then you had to do um air squats to a jump and there was 25 of each of those and then you'd have to lunge to each next level you had to finish out the eight and then in order to go back either direction, you had to do a suicide. So you had to run to each flag and back, flag, and back, flag, and back. Then do, when you're on the end, then you got to do 25 more burpees. <laughs> then you got to go back, back, and back. And then they start doing the upper, which is push-ups, which I'll, honestly, I always rocked push-ups. All, and no matter how many PT tests, that was one thing I never had to worry about. Push-ups are my Achilles But after doing heel. all that... <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, after doing all that other stuff beforehand, I was having a hard time with even the push-ups. Yeah. And then we'd, then we'd rotate into uh, some rows, uh, some body weight rows, and finish it off. So when we finished off, everybody thought we were done. <laughs> when we got to the end, uh, Aura from Mountain Tough was like, listen, one of your uh, teammates broke their leg. You need to carry them. And it was like 200 yards. 200 yards out and 200 yards back. We had to carry the person as a team. Now, we couldn't switch off who was the, the victim. We had to, or the person that was injured. <laughs> so between it was me and two other guys, we had to carry him back 200 yards and, four, and back 200 yards. And then when we finished, we thought we were done. And I was like, it happened again. And we had to go back and forth and honestly i was i kept thinking to myself i'm like this is exactly what used to happen at the police academy like i looked at him in the eye i'm like are you serious <laughs> he's like yep so needless to say so you we guys were smoked when you're done but... oh so bad <laughs> so bad yeah so um so you had what was it it was joel turner there right and he, yep. he was doing rifle instruction and archery instruction right Yep, correct. How did that go? It went well. So I'd had Joel as an instructor once before. 
so I'm kind of I was kind of used to his uh, style of instructing, and and honestly, that's kind of how I've always been through my career, having that kind of instructing. Um, he definitely changes the way I was doing things because I was a capable shot. I was a capable shot out to 60, 70 yards. Um, but I understand that I can do more and do better if I adapt his principles into my current shooting style. So it was, a, it was really a matter of having him there to you know, push me to that next level and to try to, you know, I'm going to go backwards a little bit before I can go forwards again. And it was just me coming to that reality that that's what I needed to do to, to get to that next level. Cause he's an amazing shot. Yeah. There's no, there's no arguing that for sure. Um, so what kind of described like his instruction, uh, personality to maybe somebody that doesn't actually know who Joe Turn Joel Turner is. So he's very, um, militaristic mm -hmm. and but i mean that's just that's who he is that's his character um you know that's part of his profession uh, it's something i'm used to but it's definitely not something other people are used to i mean he he will get in your face to a certain degree uh to make sure that you are doing what you need to be doing and if and if you get to the point where you're actually doing a good job at what you're doing he's going to throw a monkey wrench into there whether it's taking an arrow and tapping your hat or you know flicking your ear saying something. <laughs> yep. trying to get trying to get you to screw up but but to really to get you to that point where you need to be and when we went into the rifle aspect of things we didn't spend a whole lot of time i actually wish we had kind of spent a little more um he put us in positions where we weren't comfortable to shoot and that allowed me to, instead of having a steady rest, which I normally would try to do, whether it's, you know, up against a tree or, you know, on a bench or laying prone or, I mean, he had us in a real uncomfortable position where our reticles were going all over the place. And, um, you know, he said, just trust the process, trust the process, you know, don't worry about where your, your sights are going because you're naturally going to go back to that position and you really didn't have much of a choice in those positions you were just all over the place there was no way of really keeping yourself square so when you're saying so, those positions are you talking like seated or some kind of awkward yeah, seating so, or something yeah so it was an awkward really awkward seating seated position where we just took our arm our front arm and just laid a rifle onto there on top of our knee um, not really allowing our forearms to kind of hold up the gun. It's more like just putting it in the crease of the elbow. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we did another one where we were standing. Standing is the one that uh, I think would get me the most. You know, So I was actually more comfortable standing. It was the sitting one he had us do was the one that was felt really odd to me hmm. see like i i feel that sitting no matter how un uncomfortable or awkward you're always going to find something or some type of leverage with your body to like find that anchor point or you know what i mean to find that that uh that brace that you need that anchor but standing you don't really have that that's pretty much just like your upper body bracing that shot to me i feel like that would be more awkward now i'm not saying i can't take like a quick you know uh, standing shot at something, but to take the initial shot at something, I feel like that would not yeah. be a good position for me. So <laughs> how I was taught to shoot standing rifle was always to have your elbow in a sling, have your elbow against your body, have everything real stiff, have the stock in close to your shoulder. And he actually showed us a different way where we're actually, our elbows are up more, holding on, as far forward onto the stock and then having our other elbows up. And surprisingly, it was pretty steady without having my elbow in the sling at all. That's pretty interesting. And, uh, it was like a 25 or a 250 yard shot or 225 shot. So would and, that be uh, more I, like a carbine practice, you know, like shooting how, when you're standing, shooting a carbine or something like that? To where yeah. Kind of, yep. you know, you get the, 
like a C grip and, and, uh, that way you're kind of placing your shot in that zone before you actually even get there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's not your typical. I think most of us learn, you know, using our sling to have that extra brace and putting it against, you know, you see the Olympic shooters there, mm-hmm. you know, have their forearms in and, you know, a lot of the hunters, at least that I grew up with, we were always taught to have our, our elbow in the sling. And so we have a stiff arm because our elbow is tucked into the sling and up against our stock. Right. Just like even shooting prone, putting your elbow in that sling and getting it tied up against you and tucked back into the crease of your shoulder and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. So that's interesting, man. Matt, now it kind of makes me want to have to go take some, uh, some lessons from Jill Turner on (laughs) archery and that, but, um, so how, what was like the furthest shot you guys did like a 1250 or something, or did you push it way out there? No. So, so we, I, I don't know whether it was a scheduling issue or what it was, but we only were doing offhand shots out to 200 and 225. Okay. Um, but it was, it was to mostly deal with the process and not necessarily deal with trying to get accurate shots downrange. Makes sense. If you, if you had learn the fundamentals you can take them with you and practice them and apply them so yep. that that definitely makes sense so um did you bring your own rifle or or did you just jump on a gun when you were there no so i ended up bringing i have a uh, browning x bolt with a leopold bx5 hd i brought that on uh, 28 nozzle although nice. i did have a hard time finding ammunition for it so was uh unknown munitions there for for that class or was that just the rifle summit maybe i'm thinking of but i know unknown munitions was supposed to be there with ammunition so you wouldn't have a hard time but 28 nozzlers kind of a not that com i mean i'm not saying it's not common because it actually is right. but uh not as common as you know your 300 or 38 wind mag or something like that but yeah or seven millimeter Stuff like that. So were they yeah, there? So with they ammo? weren't. No, they weren't there. That okay. It's probably. I think the rifle summit probably has a lot more intrinsic, you know, more details and more events. Um, we were a combo. We did only did like a two-hour session on the rifle. Uh, the rest of it was all archery stuff. Yeah, I kind of find though that the archery. I'm more drawn to the archery the more I do it and I kind of gravitate away from picking up that gun so much. I don't know if it's just the fact that I know I have to stay close within range of that animal and, and mm-hmm. you know, something, there's something to it that keeps pulling me back. Um, this, the quietness of it, I, I'm not really sure. And I just drew a really awesome deer tag too. It took me four years to get the tag. I finally got it from the state of Illinois and it's a shotgun tag, but I might actually take my bow <laughs> instead of the shotgun during the, while I'm hunting the tag. I don't know. I'm kind of torn about that because I'm sure I'll be ticked off at myself if I uh, end up getting, you know, a 70 or 80 yard shot and uh, on a buck of a lifetime, which is a pretty good possibility out there. So I don't know. I'm still torn about that one. Luckily I've got plenty, yeah, they, plenty of time. <laughs> they got, they definitely got some bruisers out there. Um, I've always been an archery guy. I, I mean, I started with rifle. I, my actually, my first deer was with a muzzleloader. My second one was with a bow. I think I got like two or three more after that before I got my first rifle deer. So um, my big my big push really to get into the archery was just because I like being out in the woods alone. Yes. And I know that now it's gotten to the point where it's kind of like an in thing, but still, even out west. If you're going to draw tags, it's going to be archer tags. Or are they going to be the easier ones to draw, typically, that I've seen? I have learned that the muzzle loader is starting to become an easier one to get as well. After looking at different draw data and stuff like that, you can get, especially in like uh, Arizona and even Colorado, I think. Some of them, and I don't, maybe because a lot of people don't want to hunt Colorado with a muzzle loader because you can't have any modern stuff on it or even a scope or anything so it makes it to where a lot less people do it and i think it was like some of the ones i was looking at were like five point units and and uh with the muzzle loader was like one or two so something to keep in mind 
but um yes so this year i actually put in for probably five or six muzzleloader tags in different states um and in years past i never put in for it so because we knew i kind of had a game plan of where i thought i was going to go or had a very good chance of going so we were just looking at just trying to do something later you know around the october time frame instead of the september time frame nice nice so what was uh your kind of your biggest uh like aha moment or something that you had a preconceived notion in your head or something and uh you kind of learned from that like mine was um when Cody and um Cody and Ryan were talking about calling and you always hear people calling and doing like a locator bugle and at the end of it they'll do like a big long chuckle and all that kind of stuff and uh you know that's what I thought in my head when you're calling you kind of needed to do and uh totally false you know just get it out there and hold and maintain that high note as long as you possibly can and just get that out there so he'll hear that one note and come back at you with you know another uh, bugle and and to me it was like whoa okay man I was really thinking about that wrong and and just kind of the different calling things that they talked about that I really didn't have an idea of or know that much about um, so I'm kind of curious, like maybe if you had kind of a moment like that while you were out there. So what kind of got driven home to me was, was there's very, there's numerous ways that you can do to get the job done. Um, Ryan Barney, he's almost strictly uh, spot, spot and stock. stock. Yeah. He doesn't even care. He says he doesn't even carry a call with him anymore. Um, I know I hunted an area in Montana three years ago and it had such a small herd. They were not talking at all. And I'm sitting here ripping bugles and, you know, trying to do cow calls. And I'm like, I can't believe they're not answering. We ended up, I ended up hunting them just like, uh, whitetails really. Um, you know, and then you got Joel Turner. Joel Turner is really big on trying to not be intimidating to do a lot of uh cow calls calf calls um some just uh social type bugling uh to get in real close and then cody wilson was there and he taught the the elk um calling portion this time and he he was very aggressive but he again just like you and i like you mentioned he does not, you know, not like Corey Jacobson or, um, you know, some of these other guys that are really talented and it works for them. He doesn't, he cuts everything off. He doesn't add a lot of, you know, clunking and he yeah. just throws out the, the indicator and drops it. Hmm. Interesting. So what was your kind of approach before what like, what was your notions on that? You know, did you kind of have a real thought process behind it or you just thought kind of throw it at them and see what sticks and try and get them to come in or. Yeah. So the first time I've only been on one elk hunt where I've actually been able to do any calling. Um, I've only been on two total so far. Um, and the first one was that Colorado rifle. Fiasco. <laughs> I'm familiar with yeah, that. I know. Fiasco. And that's pretty much how I think everybody needs to cut their teeth and, and really yeah. work out those bugs to the point where they're like, wow, I'm an idiot. I had no idea. And if you don't ever go out there or, you know, you have some experience before you go out there, well then whatever, that's fine. But you need to be Joe Midwest or Joe East Coast going out there thinking he's chasing whitetail, but they're just bigger and, and go out there with that approach and you're, it's going to be such a humbling experience when you come back. If you want to go back after that, you know, you're going to educate yourself. I hope everybody yeah. does. And uh, you oh. know, it sucks. You're wasting money on a tag, but you got to look at it I, as a knowledge and a lesson learned, you know, school of hard knocks is the best way to learn. I think. I am very goal oriented. So I always want to try to fill that tag, but to be honest with you, any time that I am out west and, you know, my last two elk hunts, I haven't filled tags. I still had an amazing time. Oh, yeah. Um, 
this the last time we were out in Montana, I ended up I was more so the uh, you know the Corey Jacobson approach where I every like 150 yards I was just ripping bugles, you know, doing some you know glunking afterwards. And I mean, who knows? I probably sound awful for all I know. I do <laughs> I do all the calling for my partner and I. You know, I do all all the e-scouting and stuff like that. And I learned a lot about that this week too. Wow. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. so this is, so it really, uh, it really drove it home that I have other things to do other than what I was doing, uh, especially, you know, talking to Brian Barney, you know, the, the area that I hopefully I'm going to go back to this fall that I'd been in before. Um, I really think I'm going to try to just, strictly do spot and spot i don't even know if i'm even going to take a call out yeah um if we go to some of the other areas that i want to go to then i probably will do some more calling so i think that i think when you have all the tools in your chest you know you're going to be able to adaptively use them to the certain scenarios and i don't think anybody is 100 percent correct in how you know they're doing things that you really need to just use a little bit of everything oh, when yeah. it works. That's that's what like everybody's approach is different, but in the end, it may just be the way. Like Brian Barney is, you know, spot and stalk. Ryan Lampers, he's a spot and stalk kind of guy, but he's not beyond ripping off a locator bugle to just see what's out there and then kind of hone in on that animal. And then, you know, getting in the timber and start raking. And, like, I'd heard about raking and I'd kind of seen it, but never in the detail that they described it when I was there and the amount of, you know, effort that they tell you, you know, how much to put into that. And that's something you don't really see talked about a whole lot is just raking like crazy. I mean, um, one of the stories that I heard was Dan Staten talking about, uh, the amount of raking Lampers does. And uh, so one of his buddies kind of stumbled up upon Ryan or something like that, and they were hunting, and they were way back far deep, I think in Washington or something like that. And uh, he's like, dude, I just ran into another guy over there. And he's like, yeah, all the way out here? You know, that's pretty far. Is he alone? And he's like, yeah, I think he's alone. And he's like, is he any good? And he's like, I think he's real good. I mean, he was really raking, and I thought it was a bull, and I went over and checked it out. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and I think they were, I think he was saying they were like 10 miles back or something, because um, Dan's one of the guys that takes, you know, dirt bikes a lot and gets into a lot of places that a lot of people don't yep. go. But um, so just kind of, you know, things like that that I'd never really heard of or, or, you know, heard the amount of raking that people do versus, because I'm going to be honest, I've never heard a bull raking because I haven't got in on one yet, but, um, that's something I definitely know is now in my arsenal and, uh, I want to do. And after talking to a few other people, they say, depending on where you're at though, you know, if you're around a bunch of deadfall and it's rotten stuff, you might want to actually bring a big old like ax handle or something to actually rake on things with, because you might not get, so it's just things like that along the way I thought was so helpful to kind of learn. Um, what else was like your, some of your takeaways on, on that kind of stuff. Same thing about adding the uh, raking in. Um, when it comes to the, the elk hunting aspect of things. Um, and we did learn quite a bit about the e-scouting. So that's let's, one thing that I, let's dive into that because okay. Mark Livesey is freaking there is none, none like him when it comes to that. I'm not saying people don't e-scout or whatever, but, and I'm not making fun of him, but the man is a total freaking nerd when it comes <laughs> yeah. to looking at maps. Um, and that's cool because he's one who figures all this stuff out and then he puts it in his course, treelineacademy.net. Awesome course. Believe it or not, and he's going to be mad at me, but I still haven't gotten 100% through it because he keeps adding stuff. So my goal this month is to sit down and finish it so I can finish my e-scouting. But uh, what, uh, 
what I mean, had you ever even heard of the whole Treeline Academy or looked at it before or done any of that stuff or? So in, in podcasts I have in the past, um, I think I look, looked at a couple of his very first YouTube videos, mm-hmm. um, but I never really took it. I won't say I didn't take it seriously. I just never put the time and effort into it. So the first year I went out to Montana, and again, I do all the planning for our hunts, um, me and my partner. And I was looking at trailheads. I was looking at clearings. I was looking for like north-sided slopes. Mm-hmm. And I, that was pretty much it. Like nothing else. No, none of the little tricks and stuff that, you know, and he really didn't have a lot of time. I mean, he only had four, four hours. There was so much stuff this weekend, <laughs> this past week, four and a half days. Um, so I already told him, I went behind him. I like, listen, just so you know, I'm signing up once I get back home. Nice. So use the code. If you're going to do that, use the code PC2020 and save 20 bucks off a sign up. I think he gave me a better code. He might have. Okay. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, um, yeah, no, that's, man, I'm going to tell you, like talking to him, learning. And here's the thing like when you see him talking, it's even different than his course. So you're going to learn stuff. And I mean, the basis is the same, but some of the stuff he goes into or like gets on a tangent or a rant about while he was doing, you know, his presentation. And I think the same thing, they actually had to cut him off. They're like, all right, Mark, uh, you've gone an hour over your slotted time. So uh, people got flights to catch because um, he did it on the last day for us. Um, oh. And, and, and you know, people were like not wanting to leave because it was such good information, but, um, it's, it's amazing. And just, and the stuff I've picked up and just even the little subtleties about like changing the settings on your Google earth to where it's more realistic. You can, you can almost confidently, it's still going to be overwhelming when you get there, but it's not going to be as overwhelming coming from the Midwest, like where I'm coming from, where it's, I'm a flatlander in Illinois. Because I remember looking at a map and going, oh, that's not that bad. Well, it looks pretty steep and pretty aggressive looking at the top of the lines. But when you get there, it's like, oh, crap. That's going to take me six hours to get up there, not, you know, 45 minutes like I was thinking. I don't even have enough time to get there if I got up at 2 in the morning, you know, to get there at daybreak. Stuff like that that just, I mean, super helpful. Super helpful. So what was like? your whole thing on that what was your like you know what were you thinking i mean it's a lot like my head was swimming when he was talking about so yeah, all that yeah stuff. so 100 percent. he he went he you know he just barely scraped the barrel and it was it was a lot of information he probably had four hours total and, and like hit almost every single instructor that was there went over their time when we just kept pushing the day out nice and we would end up starting early the next day to catch up um but he was he had he was just scraping the barrel and i know that that i can be success more successful out in the woods coming from the northeast going to the west without any inside information i know that if i go through his program that i'm going to be able to get to that level where I know pretty confidently that I can go out there and I'm going to be able to almost guaranteed run into elk. I think that's huge. That, that right there, I mean, is way more than the price of the course. I mean, the fact that even to get on elk and then it's up to you to be successful, but to, to pay what you're paying for the price of that course to get that information and look at Mark's beautiful face and that shiny head um, while, while you're learning too. But uh, it's just, to me, it's like, man, and if I can pick out, you know, four spots in, you know, six different units that I'm going to hit this year in Colorado. And if I don't hit, you know, those first four spots and I only hit three of them and it just looks crappy and I'm going to go to the next one and I end up getting on elk, that right there is worth the price of admission. I, I just, blows my mind that I had no idea about any of this stuff beforehand. And then, you know, going to the summit and doing the, the, the course and 
like I said, going to finish it. But, I mean, you definitely got to dedicate some time because there's like 20, 25 hours or 26 hours of content that he put into that course. Yep. And, and uh, it, man, in the end, though, it's going to be so worth it. I'm excited because I want to get my first elk real bad. <laughs> I'm sure you do, too. Oh, so you haven't, got, you haven't have, gotten one either, huh? I haven't put one down yet, no. So this will be my second elk hunt coming up here. So... I'm, uh, yeah, I haven't, I haven't gotten one yet. I came very, very close. Some lessons were learned. Uh, my partner learned some lessons, and he actually lucked out. He actually got him into an elk uh, this last trip. So I'm hoping to go back out there with, you know, some more information and, you know, a better understanding about how we need to work as a team to be able to get things done. Absolutely. No, I think that's awesome. Um, what else was there anything else that you thought was like really cool? I heard you guys had an archery course this year. Was that uh <laughs> how was that? Ryan is he just I think he went out there just to torture people with that archery course. Him and Mark. <laughs> it was it was four and a half miles. Oh. A lot of it was uphill. And every single shot, there wasn't a shot under 40 yards. The longest shot was out to 98. We ranged it. It was supposed to be 100, but it was 98. And everything was like, there was very hard, like you had to touch your foot to the stake. So they had it set up so that it was really hard for you to be in a comfortable position position to shoot shooting around limbs uh, sometimes we had for... shooting around limbs sometimes we had to kneel and me being from the northeast and having my gyms closed all the last year i'm like my heart rate was between averaging between like 145 to 190 the whole entire time we were awesome. out there shooting <laughs> it was never before in my life if i thought of like i'm gonna quit 3d shooting and i was up there That's like awesome. halfway through and i'm like but knowing that I came a long way to get there and knowing that the drive I've always had in the past with everything else I do, I'm like, you got to buck up and drive on. And uh, did lose did lose a few arrows. One time I lost an arrow because I didn't, I forgot to adjust my sight. Um, I lost one because I was all out of tape room. I think I my sight went out to 92 yards. So I was trying to hit that. 198 yard spot <laughs> and rob robbie denning was next to me he's like oh he's like just you know just try to hit like the top of his antlers that'll probably be perfect so i aimed at the top of his antlers and ended up scraping the back of it oh so we ended up lost losing that um and then i lost one just completely my mistake i totally biffed the shot um i'll be i had a great time shooting with uh robbie denning from rock slide that would be pretty cool how how was uh how was brian barney's performance there uh, i just like did they do the beat brian barney contest shooting out to however far they did he's he's pretty he's pretty rock solid when it comes to shooting especially a dude with a super super short draw length like i think he's like yeah 20 26 inch draw length or something like he's way shorter yeah. than everybody else as far as that draw length goes and he's still just lobbing them out there like i think he went to 140 was where where he was at when because we were at cody's house doing it and i think that was like up against the edge of the farm there at cody's and i think it was like 140 yards or something it was pretty far it was it was definitely cool to watch yeah. I'll tell you what, I have never met a more motivating and positive individual as Brian Barney. Absolutely. The dude is a straight up mountain goat. Like there is absolutely nothing stopping him. And I, I made a comment to him just joking around and he go, I said something like maybe when Brian's about 65 or something, I'll be able to beat him on the mountain. And he looks at me and he goes, I'll still be running that mountain at 65. (laughs) And I go, yeah, you're right. Who am I kidding? (laughs) I don't think I would ever make that bet. <laughs> no, no, it was a dumb one to make, but 
I just wanted to get his reaction <laughs> on the whole thing. But, no, that dude, he's, uh, I mean, I've never ran an ultra marathon. I've never even run a regular marathon, so I can't attest to any of that. And that dude is always out there. He was telling me before he came to the summit, he was out for two days trail running. And it was like, it rained the whole time and there was snow and stuff. And I'm like, what? This dude's freaking crazy. He's like, yeah, my clothes are finally starting to dry out a little bit. And I'm like, oh, man, <laughs> what did I get myself <laughs> into? These guys are straight up freaking uh, different planet compared to me. But hopefully, yep. hopefully, man, we'll get there. Um, so it was definitely good talking to you. It was awesome learning, uh, you know, kind of what your take was on it and what you learned. So before we go, I got to know, though, how about that initial ascent pack? Oh my God. So, and I'm not, I was running a Mr. Ranch pack and I thought that was like Oof. perfect pack for me. I dumped mine and ditched it. And did you? Oh, I ditched it. You know, I had it, I took it on my elk hunt and then I did a lot of rucking with it and stuff. And I noticed through the rucking and like the, the preparation, it made a noise, a lot of noise underweight. And you couldn't ever quite adjust that load right. And then when you did, and then like when I went to the hunting summit last year was when I was like, man, I'm done with my MR pack because I was always constantly jacking with the, the hip belt, the kidney belt and, and with the shoulder straps because they never stayed tight. It's just the, the webbing and the buckles just weren't that good. It drove me nuts. And I was like, this is the last time I'm ever using this pack. And I came home and started doing research. And uh, a couple people told me, they're like, you know, talk to Dennis and Joe. Awesome people. You know, you need to talk to them and just kind of get a feel for the company. And that was between the pack and everybody saying how awesome it was and how great of people they were. That was something I just had to try and get behind, you know. And uh, that's what I did. So what was like, I mean, you got to do the virtual fitting with Dennis, I think. No, he pretty much had everything because his, I think his stature is pretty similar to mine. So he had everything all fitted out. He said, if if you run into any problems, just let me know. So I, I got it. Um, Didn't really need to adjust anything. I I put about 40 pounds in the first time. I I took my dogs on a three mile walk. got back and I was like all the weight like my show so I have wide shoulders and they kind of come down and packs usually bother my shoulder neck and shoulders I've always had neck you know slight neck and shoulder pain with certain packs and I'm like this is great this didn't even bother my pack at all my back at all (laughs) so then I was like okay let's bump it up a little bit so I had it up to 85 pounds and did another three miler and again i'm like this this is great like it felt so steady and just like you i was actually prior to uh submitting um my email to you about trying to get out there um you know i was in the process also looking for another another pack through some of the you know the usual top three kafaru and exto and stone Mm -hmm. glacier and um, I, I guess I had heard of initial ascent and I was actually signed up for their email, but I didn't really look into the packs themselves too much. And I think, I honestly think that it, they're going to be a company that's going to be at the top Yeah. when, it, when more, when they get, when the word gets out there and more people try and more people are keeping an open mind to the other pack companies they they're they're going to do really really well i actually ended up i think i've spent another 150 dollars you know just buying accessories and the lid nice. and so i have cover. i haven't bought any accessories yet from well i mean i bought like when i bought my pack i bought the uh the pocket and now i kind of want a pocket on the other side because i always keep a tourniquet in the one pocket and just yeah. kind of like, you know, minor first aid tourniquet type stuff, you know, stop the bleed. Um, but now I want another one so I can keep like a spare release in there and some other stuff so I can kind of lighten the load on my bino harness because I've got a lot of crap on my bino harness. But I haven't done like anything else. Uh, what'd you buy? Did you buy 
what would you get so i bought the lid i bought the lid straps i bought the rain cover and i wanted to support them i really could have probably have gotten a rain cover for cheaper um or even had the rain cover from my mystery ranch and just used it but i really wanted to support them with the company because Dennis was awesome. Like him and I went back and forth on Instagram. Um, the the original fitment, what I ran into was I he called us, him and I are in-betweeners. So his his pack belt and the frame are there, he's kind of in between on the pack belt, and the same with me. And I found that I was like when I had the hundred pounds on, I was like totally maxed out with adjustments. Yeah. He's like, we need to go back the next time, next size. So I went ahead and returned that, got it back, got the pack all set up. Um, and then I ended I did end up buying a pouch. But to be honest with you, I am probably gonna either pick up the uh 4K pack or the 6K pack for my elk hunt um come this fall. So I bought, I recently bought the 6K bag. And to be honest, I haven't even put it on my frame yet, but I'm probably going to use that. I also have the pannier, which is pretty cool. And it's even, what's nice about that is like, you don't even need a bag on your frame. You can just use the pannier and the lid and you've got enough for a day pack and something to haul out meat with. Or if you want to go rucking and, you know, get some, some pack weight on your back and get some exercise in that pannier itself will do that, which is pretty cool. I mean, the whole setup, I just watched a video the other day in the email of um, Diego uh, from Muley Tines, I think. I can't remember. Um, gosh, I should know that. Um, but anyway, he, like 12-year-old, 13-year-old kid, and he carried uh, 100 or 150 pounds on that pack. I saw that. Yeah, I was like, dude, that is impressive. So, I mean, that's pretty cool. It definitely supports the weight to where you just, you don't feel it on all those pressure points and hot spots. And you don't get like the, because you're reefing down on your chest strap and getting that where it like pushes up against your, uh, you know, your collarbone. And, uh, you know, just, it's it's a great pack. <laughs> and I can't, I can't say enough. And so it was so cool that I actually got to give one away. And, uh let somebody else experience it and have the same kind of feeling I did when I put it on. I think that's so awesome. So uh huge shout out, Dennis and Joe. Thank you so much for, uh, for helping out with that giveaway. And um, I'm glad you like it. So that's pretty Absolutely. cool. Yeah, that's definitely. Cool. Thank you guys. Cause that uh, I'm super, super impressed. And I got to admit, I kind of love the notes a little bit. Too. It's awesome. They it, sent it every pack, every pack. And, and honestly, so, so one of my major hangups and the reason why I was looking my, and you know, I'm Mr. Ranch packs are perfectly good. Anybody can use them. They work. Um, one of my hangups was the fact that they weren't made in the USA, That's especially great. after the pandemic. Yep. So, you know, I, I kind of wanted to try to get out of the, that pack at that, you know, this past spring, prior to putting in for that contest yeah that's actually been a goal of mine is to and not just go out all at once and spend a ton of money but to slowly give back you know by buying from companies that dedicate their time and their hard work and their effort to doing as much as they can to make a good quality american-made product here and um I think that's pretty cool and that's important that everybody tries to do that because we've seen what happens with, you know, the pandemic and shortages and stuff like that. I mean, even I got buddies who ordered rims for their trucks and they've been waiting forever because they're not made here. It's just crazy things like that that you don't realize until, you know, and the fact that, you know, you're paying somebody a decent wage, you know, a hardworking person making a decent wage to to make a quality product right here in the united states and i think that's that's something we need to look at too and that's like the four low so i slowly started changing out all my hunting clothes to four low i don't have you know a full lineup yet but you know over time that's something i'll do and 
and try and do that with all my other products too. Yeah, th there's not very many clothing companies right now that are making things in the U.S. Nope, nope. So if you haven't heard of Forlow, that's one you can take a look at. So I definitely will. Um, so I appreciate it, man. We've gone an hour just uh, talking about all the good stuff. I think it's so cool. And I have probably it. like 45 minutes more worth of stuff to say <laughs> about um, that. But about uh, that summit. Yeah, it was it was an amazing experience for me, and I'm glad you got that experience too. And uh, wanted to give it to somebody that that deserved it. And so, you know, I thought it was pretty cool. You know, your reasoning for it, and also, you know, thank you for your service. And, and um, you know, especially this day and age, you know, officers aren't exactly getting the respect that they deserve. So I think it's pretty cool, and I'm glad I got to send somebody like you out there. And uh, thank you, man. I appreciate it. And uh, thanks for the interview. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Ever, you know, given the opportunity. And I definitely want to thank, you know, Initial Ascent for giving me the pack as well. Yeah. All right, man. Have a good one. Hey, you too. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. the most legendary shows in the outdoors is on waypoint tv don't miss primo's truth about hunting wednesday nights at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment on mondays head offshore with captain scott walker and steve roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures coming to me coming to me coming to me double he's jumping he's jumping he's jumping oh, oh. Look at that don't miss mondays with into the blue brought to you by academy sports and outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m eastern tell a few fish stories along the way on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment